Well, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. We've been in Hebrews uh, quite a while, and we're now entering the last chapter, and we're going to be here a few weeks. Chapter 13 is kind of an appendix to the book of Hebrews. Most of the New Testament letters conclude with a chapter or two of more personal instructions and greetings. They may even mention people by names, especially in some of Paul's letters. And you see uh, that same pattern here uh, in, uh, in this, this chapter 13 and a change to a more personal style. The first 12 chapters actually form a complete sermon or uh, quote-unquote, word of exhortation, as he calls it here in 1322. Uh, chapter 13 is a, is a wrap-up of sorts, but we shouldn't dismiss it as, as something that's just tacked on to the end and, and something that's not as important as the rest. It's very instructive and encouraging to us today and in the coming weeks as we move forward. Now, as we read chapter 13, I want you to remember that the first recipients of this letter were Jewish converts to Christianity who were weary from persecution and trials. And they were on the verge of giving up their Christianity and going back to Judaism because Christianity was against the law, Judaism was not, and it was just such an easier life to be a Jew rather than a Christian in those days. The zeal that they once had that we read about in chapter 10 where they willingly faced persecution to go visit those who were in prison, that zeal for Jesus had faded. These Christians were in a state of spiritual decline, spiritual declension, as they said in an earlier time, or to use a more modern term that many of you are familiar with, they were backsliding. And the author is concerned that they're going to quit altogether. So he's bringing them this warning. And if we went back and looked at the different things that he speaks to them in the sermon, he says and points out to them that certain things that they were engaged in, they were neglecting their salvation, see in chapter 2. They were trending toward an evil, unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. They were not striving to enter that rest that Jesus had secured for his people. They were not holding to their confession of faith in Jesus. They had become dull of hearing, sluggish, They had lost their confidence or their boasting in the faith. It was not something they were proud of anymore. They were ready to throw it to the side. They were not running the race with endurance. He's been addressing this all along. And and these matters should concern us because we are much like them. Maybe we're not tempted to go to Judaism, but we are tempted to give up the fight give up the race, 
Sometimes we do neglect our salvation. Sometimes we do fall into unbelief. We have become dull of hearing and sluggish. We all have seen this in our lives, and maybe you're struggling with it today. So this would be something that we should pay attention to closely because we struggle in the same ways. Our love for the Lord grows cold. Our zeal for Him dies out. The appeal of the world and those sins that we love grow stronger. And this can happen to you and start happening to you before you're even aware of it. And and it can go on a long time before anybody else is aware of it. Because no one notices until you are well down the road of spiritual decline. Octavius Winslow wrote a a great book. Uh, He was a preacher in the 1800s. And he, read the, he, he wrote a book called Personal Declension and Revival of Religion in the Soul. It's a memorable title, one you probably wouldn't uh, put on a book today. But he's concerned with this, uh, this backsliding, spiritual decline that so many Christians in, encounter in their lives. And he says this, This decay of grace may be advancing to without any marked decline in the spiritual perception of the judgment as to the beauty and fitness of spiritual truth. The loss of spiritual enjoyment, not of a spiritual perception of the loveliness and harmony of the truth, shall be the symptom that betrays the true condition of the soul. The judgment shall lose none of its light, but the heart much of its fervor. In other words, you can understand the truths of the gospel, but your heart's not in it anymore. The truths of revelation, especially the doctrines of grace, shall occupy the same prominent position as to their value and beauty, and yet the influence of these truths may be scarcely felt. The word of God shall be assented to, but as the instrument of sanctification, of abasement, of a nourishment, the believer may be an almost utter stranger to it. Yes, he must necessarily be so while this process of secret declension is going forward in his soul. So see, we can, we can fall into this without even knowing it ourselves, and we can play the game and have a head religion instead of a heart religion. And that's what he's talking about. He goes on and he says this, When a professing man can proceed with his accustomed religious duties strictly, regularly, formally, and yet experience no enjoyment of God in them, no filial nearness, no brokenness and tenderness, and no conscious of sweet return, he must suspect that his soul is in a state of secret and incipient backsliding from God. Well, the good news is the writer here in chapter 13 addresses some particular problems, particular areas with which his readers were struggling due to their discouragement, their backsliding. You know, it's no accident that he's uh, saying the things he's saying here in chapter 13. They're, they're on, a, on the verge of abandoning the faith and it's coming out in certain ways. And what I want us to do today is to start looking through this chapter and looking at it through that lens of, you know, 
if these are the things that happen to you when you start spiritually declining, when you start backsliding, you know, I, I want us to be aware of that and to look at it through that lens that, you know, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, to see if you are growing, if, if, if you're moving forward and not backwards. He says several things here in the chapter. He talks about apathy, impurity, discontentment, cowardice, disillusionment. He addresses all these, these here. And he's writing these things to reverse that spiritual decline that's been manifested in, in these traits. And we'll be looking at these traits through these verses over the next few weeks. Now the first sign of spiritual decline that we see addressed here is a lack of love, hospitality, and care towards others. And we come to God's Word. Let's stand together as I read Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 and verse 16. And we'll see him addressing this love, hospitality, and care of others. God's Word says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is God's word, and we rejoice in it. Please be seated. So there's four things he mentions here. He talks about, first of all, brotherly love. He talks about hospitality. He talks about remembering those who are suffering. And he talks about goodness and generosity. And these are the four things I want to look at today. I want to look at them briefly because we understand what these things are. Maybe we'll shed a little bit more light on it. And then at the end, I want us to, uh, I want to try to motivate you with the gospel uh, to how we can rekindle our love for the Lord. Well, his instructions are as follows. First of all, that we should let brotherly love continue. And now that word brotherly love is one word, and the word is Philadelphia. Uh, we have uh, cities named the city, you know, Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love because it's named brotherly love in Greek. Well, that's the one in Pennsylvania. The one in Mississippi, I don't know if it's got any brotherly love or not. I've preached there before. They were nice people, so, you know. And they had the Neshoba County Fair there, too, so that's fun. Well, this word is Philadelphia, and Philadelphia is one of those compound words in Greek. It's, there's two words, and the first is philos. And I'm telling you this not just to show off my learning, but I'm telling you this because there's going to be a point in the next point that has to do with this word. So the first part is philos, which means affection or friendship. It's one of the words for love, and it's a brotherly love. It's a filial love. And the word adelphos, which means brother. So brother love, brotherly love. So all through Scripture, especially in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well, love is the hallmark of Christians. Especially love to the brethren, to the sisters. Love to our family in Christ. It was true in the Old Testament, even more true now. In the Old Testament, it was pretty much contained within the Jewish nation, the, the nation of Israel. Uh, they, they were uh, 
adamant on loving one another because the Lord had instructed them to do so. But in Christianity, where we've expanded to every tongue and tribe and nation, we're called to love people all over the world. Everyone who is a brother or sister in Christ. I'll just give you a rundown of some of the scriptures that we know uh, that, that, that say this in the New Testament. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. In other words, God has put that love in your heart to love others. That should be there. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 John 3, 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In 1 John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's just a sample. I could go on. But we'd be here a long time. So love for one another when we start declining spiritually, moving backwards, getting sluggish, our love for others grows cold. We withdraw. We don't want to have to fool with other people anymore. And we don't want to take time to reach out or to call or to visit or to show kindness to one another. And that's a warning sign to us. Do we really have that love that the Lord puts in our hearts for others. And the second thing he shares with us is hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now the word here, the, the, the word brotherly love is Philadelphia. The word for hospitality to strangers is philoxenia. Philoxenia. So it's the word Philos, same as Philadelphia, affection, friendship, love. And it's the word xenia. It's the wor word we get, uh, our word, xenophobia. Xenophobia, well, you hear that a lot thrown around in our day. Uh, fear of people who are different than us. Fear of the stranger. So that's what the word means. It means stranger in Greek. So not xenophobia is what we're looking for. We're looking for philoxenia. Love to strangers, love to strangers, hospitality is how it's translated here, or you've got an older translation, don't forget to entertain. Now, if you look up hospitality on the Internet in our day, it's going to give you a lot of information about hotels and restaurants, and that's not what we're talking about here. In the ancient uh, world, they didn't have uh, very many, well, they didn't have hotels, uh, no chains, of hotels to go visit when you went traveling because they didn't travel that much and there was not that much of a need for 
uh, for uh, hotels and inns. They did have inns, you know, Mary and Joseph. Uh, couldn't find room in the inn. Well, that was the inn. There was no other because they didn't have a lot of inns and there was a lot of people traveling to go back to take the census. So hospitality in the ancient world was different than the today because there was not many inns or restaurants. They, didn't, they couldn't drive down the road like we can and find 20 restaurants readily available to us. They had to rely, if you were forced to travel, you had to rely on the friendship and goodness of strangers. Now, there's a whole process that you had to go through, and you see it in the Scripture from time to time where people who are traveling, they'll stop outside the city gate uh, or they'll stop by a community well, and they would wait for someone to come invite them in to stay with them. And this was something that was practiced across the cultures in, in the ancient times because it was so necessary. If you had to travel, you'd be out of luck. If, if you didn't uh, have the hospitality of other people. And so uh, hospitality was important in their culture, and God ramps it up even more when he gave the law to Israel. When he established the rules for his people in the Old Testament, he said repeatedly, you do a search on stranger in the Old Testament and you're going to get a long list where that word is used, not in a pejorative sense, but in a very positive sense. And here's one of the key verses, Leviticus 19.33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that phrase, strangers who sojourn in your land, is all over, especially the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, because God was concerned about the strangers who were sojourning. And, and God said, there's not going to be a law for you and a law for the stranger among you. It's going to be the same law. So those people were expected to come in and adopt the ways of the people of God. Now don't think, start thinking America and immigration. That's, that's not uh, the one-to-one -one correspondence. Think Israel and the church. The church of God, the people of God, uh, in the Old Testament is who he's, he's addressing in the law, and they were the ones called to be hospitable, and when someone came in to their, uh, to their culture, to their nation, they were to welcome them and help them and help them to, to adopt the ways of God. They were to be circumcised. They were to celebrate Passover. If they decided to uh, break the law, they would be punished the same way as any Israelite would be. So the, you see the purpose of hospitality in the Old Testament was to make the stranger a friend, to make the stranger one of the group. The same thing is for us. Why should we reach out to, to strangers around us to welcome in fellow believers, to welcome in potential fellow believers? So the thing is, what he's calling us to do is to reach out to those who maybe not like us, who are different than us, who don't go to church and seek to show them kindness so that we might welcome them in. 
There should be a screening process. This isn't a command to just let anybody in. Uh, you have to, they have to be willing to come in and adopt the ways uh, of the church. And, you know, there's more to be said about that, but it's something that Jesus valued. You know, the parable of the sheep and the goats, where the sheep and the goats are, set, uh, are separated at the judgment day. And Jesus says, uh, when he places the sheep on the right and the goats on the left, and he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared to you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And they said, When do we ever do this? And he says, When you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it unto me. So you don't know who's your brothers if they're a stranger to you. You don't know if that woman is your sister if she's a stranger to you. You don't know until you get to know them. And maybe they are one of the elect and they'll be coming in to the kingdom of God. So hospitality. When you lose your zeal for Jesus, you lose your zeal for reaching out for hospitality. I've just done some research on population growth in the, the 30 southern counties of Mississippi, which is what our presbytery is, that's our, the boundaries of our presbytery. And Mississippi's population only grew total by like 18,000. Um, but Harrison County, in the last 10 years, has grown by 20,000, over 20,000. And we're the second largest growing county. First is DeSoto County, 24,000. So people are moving out of the rural areas and they're moving to the coast and they're moving to the Memphis sprawl. Hattiesburg is growing as well in our area. But everything else in between is doing nothing better than holding its own. We're here in Harrison County. We have a great opportunity. That's why we're planning churches. We, we need to reach out and show hospitality so that the church can grow. If we don't go forth and talk to people and tell them and invite them in, they won't ever hear the gospel. And Jesus reached out to us. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, we need to do two other things. Remember the suffering. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are, also are in the body. People mistreated for their faith, people thrown in prison to identify with those who are suffering around us, especially those who are suffering for their faith. Uh, I think we need to be aware. We don't see that too much in our culture today. It's increasing, mostly verbal abuse. But uh, other parts of the world are suffering greatly, and we need to be mindful of that and do what we can do to help and pray for them. And then finally, gen goodness and generosity. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Again, goodness and generosity to people is something that's valued in the Old Testament and in the New. Micah 6, 6, 8, this famous verse, What shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of body, my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness 
and to walk humbly with your God, to love justice, to bring justice, to work for justice in our world is important. And the New Testament stresses the same things, to care for the poor, for those who are in need and those who are suffering, and to be generous. And then Paul, he talks about this being a great sacrifice, uh, that to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Paul reiterates this in Philippians 4 when he was the, the, object, of, uh, uh, the object of some payment, some uh, donations that were given to him. He writes to the Philippians and says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So consider... Generosity is uh, giving to God when we give to others. That changes your perspective on it. And when we are in a condition of backsliding, we lose our enthusiasm for those who are suffering and for those who face injustice and for the poor. Well, I want us to to, uh, think for a moment, how do we change? How do we get out of our spiritual decline? If you find yourself lacking love for others lacking in hospitality, lacking in uh, identifying with those who are suffering, if you find yourself uh, stingy and not caring for others who are in need, well, what's he been doing through this whole book? He's been telling us to consider Jesus. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our faith, chapter 3. Chapter 12, run with endurance the race that is before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You know, consider several things here real quickly. First of all, we've been loved with a a greatest brotherly love that's ever been demonstrated because Jesus laid down his life for his friends. He showed the ultimate love and he continues to care for us and love us and he will bring us home. And consider his hospitality We were strangers, alienated from God. Came from the Garden of Eden when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. We were kicked out of fellowship with God, of that close relationship with God. And through Jesus, through his becoming a stranger, being rejected, we are welcomed into the family. And he's going to bring us home to a place where we are known forever, the new heavens and new earth. We're going to be there. You know, if you look at the Revelation 21, 22, where it describes the city of God, there's the tree of life there that was there in the Garden of Eden. So we're going back to that place of close fellowship. We were strangers. Christ became a stranger. And he suffered in the body for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer in the body. He was abandoned by God when he hung on the cross for our sins. And when you look at Jesus and think about that, it should move us to want to show our gratitude by loving others. Because he said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. It's a way that we can serve Jesus. And Jesus was generous. What does he give us? His righteousness. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. It is credited to us. You know, think about the wonderful uh, experience you have when you look at your bank account and you see that money has been credited to you. Who doesn't love that? 
Maybe you didn't earn it. Maybe you didn't deserve it. And it just somebody just gave it to you. Who, who knows where it might have come from? But Jesus does even more for us than that. He credits us with his absolute perfection in everything that he ever did. And God can accept us because we are holy in his sight. So may we love one another because Christ loved us. May we be hospitable to the stranger because we were strangers and Christ welcomes us in. May we show love to those who are suffering and care for them because Jesus cared for us when we should suffer. He saved us from our sufferings that we deserve. And may we be generous to others as we consider how generous Jesus has been to us. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness and mercy to us. Forgive us for our cold hearts. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us to ever consider Jesus and his great love for us. Lord, it's so easy for us to forget. It's so easy for us to love other things rather than you. We're so shameful in that regard. So, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us and stir up by your power of your Holy Spirit, stir up a zeal and love for you, a red-hot love for you that would say no to sin and yes to loving you and loving others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.